This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome back. I'm Nikolai Zikolko, co-director of the Mac Institute and professor of management at Wharton. And this is Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. Now I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, Nathan Snell. He is the chief innovation officer at the financial tech firm Encino. Uh, Encino makes cloud-based banking software, which is now used at over 150 banks and credit unions. Uh, Nathan, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Nikolai. Now, when it comes to financial services, we're entering again a world of high complexity, right? We have a vast array of products, loans, checking accounts, credit cards, investment advice. Then we have a range of firms, commercial banks, investment banks, mutual funds, investment advisors. Then we have a whole range of regulators. Where in this entire web of financial services does Encino play? Yeah, that's a, a, great, uh, a great question and a great point on the complexity. So, you know, where Encino plays in that whole realm is, you know, as you mentioned at the very beginning, we're a cloud-based system. And really what we call, like the product that we describe is the bank operating system. And for us, our bank operating system is really a single cloud-based platform to help bring that complex web that you described into one platform. So for us, you know, we help financial institutions originate, whether it's on the consumer side, as you mentioned, loans or deposits, the commercial side, the same sort of things, whether it's cash management, you know, or getting into some of those other areas. Ultimately, we bring all that under one roof with the Encino Bank operating system, so that way banks can operate much more efficiently, much more transparently in understanding what's going on, and to kind of your last point, in a way that's much less risky from a regulatory standpoint. Hmm. So... What's the current state of affairs? Does the uh, bank have like five different operating systems or what's going on? So I would say uh, depending on which side of the bank that you're looking at, uh-huh. so commercial being or the wholesale side being an example, um, depending on the size of the institution, we see anywhere from, you know, five systems, say on the low end to <laughs> 30 plus systems on the high end. So it's it really is, uh, to your initial point, a complex web as far yeah. as what it can look like before we come in. Now, I could imagine the transition from 35 to 1 systems <laughs> is not an easy one. No, def- there's definitely a path to get there, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what is that path? <laughs> so uh, a lot of that path uh, is really, uh, I mean, frankly, really deals with innovation and, yeah. and the journey that we plan and try to take our customers along. So, you know, at the outset, um, when you're looking at that many systems, you know, oftentimes there's a few things in play for a financial institution. You know, one is they've clearly gotten the idea, at least at least if they're working with Encino, that, you know, there's a vision there, there's, you know, there's a desire to be innovative, but they understand that they can't sort of, you know, eat the elephant all in one bite. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we put together a phased approach so that way, you know, from a banking standpoint, they can really evolve to the point that's, uh, that's best for them and take the sort of comfortable steps, but what tend to be accelerated steps to get to that final point, as opposed to trying to be revolutionized, right? Mm-hmm. And I think... In many cases, when you look at innovation um, and what goes on in a marketplace, if you just sort of bring in the revolution, it can be very difficult for financial institutions or for any company to try to make that one big step. Yeah. So we often plan out that innovation journey that we can guide them on so that way they can get from you know point A to point Z or whatever right. it may be. <laughs> yeah, it's not B, right? It's Z. Um, <laughs> right. The, um, now, no one starts out creating a bank and says, we want to have 35 systems, right? So um, so how, how did they get that way, right? I mean, there must have been a reason of, of why they ended up with, with so many systems. 
Sure. Uh, a lot of it ends up being um, the sort of natural organic growth that happens within an institution. Mm-hmm. So, you know, depending on and, and the journey right is, is different for every uh, for every institution. But you know, as organizations grow in size, uh, the the systems that they start with are often those that begin to become those sort of entrenched legacy systems. And many times, instead of you know, re-architecting or instead of looking at, you know, where the bank may want to go, you know, they continue to just add layers. And especially when you think about the pace of technological change, that really, uh, you know, that really enforces that, uh, that problem where they're just trying to keep up. They've got these other systems in place. And the cost or sometimes the desire or the risk that at times can be associated with trying to make that jump or trying to re-architect something uh, at times gets put by the wayside, and instead the layers are put in place. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's one, mm-hmm. that's one mm-hmm. example that happens. Yeah. You know, another right is the build versus buy situation. So mm-hmm. many institutions, too, start off deciding to build until they find themselves in the situation where all of their you know, money is being invested in maintenance and not even building new things. And right. they get sort of stuck in yeah. this sort of innovation rut. Right. Now, so, so far it sounds a lot of communication inside the firm, right? Sort of, you know, we have all these 35 different data systems. They don't talk to each other. You know, can we can we unify that? Um, mm-hmm. Now, but there, are, I think, also right sort of connections now from the bank to their customers, right? Mm-hmm. And there are maybe connections even inside the firm of, of employees to the firm. What are some other ways of how you are kind of managing these these connections with your software? Yeah, so, so that's a great thing, right? Is if if a bank starts off with the right mindset and the right approach and brings on something like the Encino Bank operating system, then what they're able to achieve is really a single platform. And I'd say not dissimilar to what we as consumers end up experiencing with something like an Amazon or Google or an Mm -hmm. Apple, but bringing in something like a single platform, you know, really lets you, uh, really lets a bank uh, achieve the idea of having sort of different sides of the same coin. So instead of trying to pipe information all over the place or having uh, these sort of cobbled together integrations or bolt-ons, um, you know, to your point, what they can do is they can really say, okay, let's service the customer the right way and, and create a customer experience that we can be proud of. Mm-hmm. And, we can, and then they can take that from the branch and they can move it digital, which we also assist with. And for us, because it's one platform, it's really just an extension of what the system does. So yeah. you know, I liken it to, you know, you can clean up your house and you can get it all nice looking. And then when you open up your front door, that's sort of your customer-facing piece. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if it's all on one platform, instead of having to have two houses, which is what often happens, right, yeah. one for your customers to see and one for your employees to see, you get one that's clean and that's organized and that's efficient. Yeah, so tell us a bit, so what are the current sort of inefficiencies in the, in the, in the system that you try to reduce? So on the commercial side, um, often what we look at is you know, there are many sort of credit-oriented inefficiencies. So informa- just having transparency in, into information like uh, document exceptions, policy exceptions, um, you know, oftentimes when somebody goes through an origination process, uh, you know, just because a bank has a credit policy doesn't mean that that's always what's best to follow. Um, mm-hmm. They usually try to, right? That's why the policy is in place. Yep. But at times, right, as they know the customer, um, they make exceptions to that policy, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you aren't able to track that effectively, um, then that can become an efficiency where your policy ends up bogging you down, where the data is actually showing you you need to make an adjustment to the policy mm. because maybe it's too rigid in some places mm-hmm. where it should otherwise mm-hmm. be less rigid. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's certainly one. I mean, when it comes to decisioning, so if you, as you look more on the consumer side, you know, many institutions still, um, you know, the underwrite, say, a small business loan is an example, manually. But uh, and as the market is continuing to evolve and as we, see, as we have seen alternative lenders come into the space, um, there's more and more uh, evidence that, you know, while manual underwriting needs to happen in some cases, in many cases we can run it through something like an automated decision tool yep. that's able to accelerate that process very dramatically. Right. 
So it sounds, I mean, that was kind of two very interesting examples because they were, they were quite different, right? Sort of the, the last example you gave was really, okay, we have a particular process in place, but we can basically make that existing process more efficient, right, by going from mm-hmm. manual to automated. And then the first one, the first example you explained was actually kind of we learn how to change our processes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so it's sort of, again, the same thing at a lower cost or a better thing, right? Um And can you give us a couple more of those examples? That's really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, another that's sort of along the the lines of the first example, you know, so document management becomes something that's very difficult. And I would say um, it really falls into kind of both the categories that you mentioned. So document management, um, you know, what tends to happen at an institution, say on the commercial side of the bank, is a particular product is determined to be sold to a customer, um, like a commercial term loan or if they're purchasing real estate or what have you. And today, what often happens is an institution pulls up an Excel spreadsheet, and they look at all the documents that they're supposed to collect. And they sort of tick it off on the spreadsheet as they determine that, you know, they've collected it or that, need, or that it needs to be collected. Um, as opposed to within Encino, we actually have all of that logic embedded within the system. Mm-hmm. So as soon as that product gets set up within Encino and you begin that process with the customer, you know, we notify the bank, hey, here's all the things that you need to collect, and we keep track of that automatically and store it automatically for them. So there's an efficiency piece there. But what's more is not dissimilar to credit policy exceptions. In some cases, in an effort to make the customer happy, uh, which is a good thing, and move the loan through the process, they might waive uh, you know, the collection of a particular document to be captured later on down the line in the process. Mm-hmm. But again, if they don't have that same sort of visibility into what the exceptions have been, uh, then it makes it very difficult to then go and close out those exceptions, which can, mm-hmm. which can end up leading to more regulatory burdens or yeah. that sort of thing. Interesting. Interesting. Now, sort of gets kind of through this question of kind of what data is being gathered when and where, right? Uh, and and uh, uh, again, your examples, I think, show, okay, we have certain regulations where we have to collect certain data. Then there are certain policies that we have, and that's why we collect this data. And probably our existing costs prevent us from collecting even more data, right? Uh, and as now these processes become more efficient, presumably we can even collect more data without driving our costs up. Is that sort of a direction where things are going? Yeah, 100%. I mean, what we find oftentimes is, you know, to exactly your point, you know, as all these many systems collapse down into one system, um, you know, a few things happen. So, you know, firstly, the the richness of the data and the accuracy of the data skyrockets. Um, You know, mostly because, right, you're not trying to manage all these different systems and keep them in sync. You know, it ends up being at the beginning and sort of inordinate or impossible task. Um, So the quality of the data uh, and its accuracy goes up. You know, the second piece to your point as well is, you know, as you bring as you bring all these details or all these different systems together into one effectively, uh, there's also a lot of flexibility that we offer with the platform. So, in many institutions, uh, the cost of even adding one additional field that they might want to capture mm-hmm. is very, very high. Yeah. Whereas within Encino, uh, if they're if the business determines that, you know, they can drive more value or help the customer more by capturing one or two additional types of information. Uh, it's point and click and very easy mm-hmm. to extend the Encino product so that way that information can be captured to be leveraged in things like artificial intelligence or you know just or, or whatever else it may be. Yeah, great. Uh, in case you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nikolai Zigelko, and my guest is Nathan Snell from Encino. Um, Nathan, sort of, you I think mentioned the word digitization at some point. Um, and clearly this has been sort of around for a really long while, right? I think we've been talking about the paperless office for probably two decades. So, so what's, what's different now? What, what gives us now hope it will actually happen? 
So I think uh, I think a few factors are in play as far as um, you know what gives at least me hope that it, that it will happen. Um, you know, one is you know from an Encino standpoint, you know we're driving that digitization um, you know quite heavily. So you know as we see paperless things happening, I mean that's that's a lot of what we're driving with our product and our traction in the market between having 150 customers, and that's really you know ranging um, from some of the largest institutions in the world to some of the smallest. You know, I'd say that alone is, is very encouraging, particularly just that band alone. Mm-hmm. You know, as it shows that you know there's an appetite and sort of a, I think a, an understanding and a technology. Um, you know, that sort of journey that I mentioned before. You know, a journey that we've put in place that's gotten financial institutions comfortable with the idea of being able to move more and more away from paper. Now, you know, there's still things that happen where, you know, from a from purely a uh, familiarity standpoint, mm-hmm. um, paper tends to get used sometimes, say with credit memos or things of that sort. But at the end of the day, we still ultimately digitize all of that within the Encino product. Um, so I think just seeing the trend over the last six years for us uh, alone is a pretty good indication. Yeah. Um, certainly, I think other evidence in the space is the number of other fintechs that are competing directly with banks in the, the, um, the either complete lack of paper or very little amount of paper that they use mm-hmm. ends up being another proof point in the market, I think, yeah. both more broadly and also to financial institutions directly. Interesting. So that's part of the data gathering process, right? Instead <laughs> sort of we digitize. Mm-hmm. Um, then you mentioned, of course, the word AI, because everyone has to mention the word AI. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so kind of what... Uh, improvements have we done on the analytics, right? Because one thing is, okay, now we've gathered all of this information, we have all our systems talk to each other, and now I'm sitting on five terabytes of data every day. Uh, what do I do with it? Um, yeah, absolutely. What, what, what are some of the improvements there? Or what, what are some kind of cool new things that come out of the analytics part? Yeah, so, I mean, I would say that's probably one of the most exciting trends um, you know, in financial services, you know, among, you know, among a handful. Um, you know, particularly because if you look at you know, artificial intelligence, and really what, what uh, institutions have been doing today, I'd say, you know, some of them are, are very advanced with it. You know, many of them uh, aren't necessarily doing everything that they could with respect to taking advantage to the, you know, really large set of data that they have about their customers, about what goes on in a market. You know, and I'd say, you know, it ranges from everything um, from being able to offer better product recommendations, right, and that sort mm-hmm. of Amazon sense of, yep. you know, knowing kind of the habits of people and the things that they may, they may need. Two things that we're working on in Encino, that, that being included, like uh, being able to actually take, to your point on paperless, instead of a bank saying, hey, can you go and you know, send in your tax return and, and then verify that, and, oh, or you can't, can you go and manually enter that in for us, Mr. Customer uh, or Mrs. Customer, having it be a situation where I can take a picture of it, and then via something like Encino, we can actually OCR, take all that information out, and send it through to help expedite that underwriting process. Mm-hmm. So, and then I think bank efficiency as a whole and credit risk, there's a lot of other areas that we're, at least from the Encino standpoint, getting into that seems to be a tremendous opportunity to really help banks drive yeah. more efficiency and drive that credit risk down. Mm-hmm. Great. So you're helping banks to become better. Um, how do you improve yourself to become better? So kind of what feedback loop is there to improve the Encino operating system? So when it comes to Encino, I mean, obviously we uh, – we value innovation very highly. I mean, mm-hmm. given uh, you know, given my role in the company as chief innovation officer, you know, myself, I was one of the co-founders, and I'd say switched into this role relatively recently. Just mm-hmm. as we've been continuing to grow um, rapidly, we're getting to a scale where we want to make sure that uh, that we're able to continue to keep that emphasis. And I'd say, you know, we really sort of approach it from uh, two different mindsets. You know, one, um, you know, just sort of talking high level is 
you know, making sure that we have all of the information, um, all the inputs coming in from the market. So details like con- you know, coming from conferences, from customers, I'd say looking at parallel industries and seeing what's going on there. You know, so we try to take as much sort of input as we can uh, to really fill our kind of ideation funnel. And then from there, I think we take a little bit of a unique approach where once that information is digested, our, part of our validation process is actually leading by design. So mm-hmm. in prior roles and even earlier on in the company, one of the things that I think we uh, you know, saw very quickly, right, is when you talk about innovation, uh, it's almost a very emotional thing. People get excited about innovation, but it's this mix of sort of excitement and fear as folks try to grapple with where yeah. they maybe like to be and, and the challenge of how do they get there. So the more tangible that you can make it, which is part of why we lead that through design, um, the more of a tangible reality we can create uh, that innovation to be at the at the beginning, the more we can really validate um, you know the value of that idea. Mm-hmm. And we try to do that you know very often internally in spinning up new ideas and having uh, part of my innovation team you know work with even our product management team. So for us, it's whether it's brand new ideas or smaller ideas, um, that's some of sort of the approach that we take around it. Yeah. Now. Just think about financial services, but I think lots of other industries, there seem to be somewhat sort of two opposing forces in terms when it comes to how to think about our customers. So one is this idea, let's give our customers, and I'm thinking the end customer, right? Give that customer more and more data to help him or her kind of make better decisions, right? So that's like the empowered customer, right? I have now access Mm -hmm. to this information and I have decision tools and now I can make decisions. And then on the other hand, you have the, oh, let's just try to make the life of our customer easier and easier, right, by doing things sort of automatically for the customer, right? Let's call it the pampered customer, right? Um, <laughs> where, you know, so, so where's the right balance here, right? Uh, so on the one hand, it's empowering. On the other hand, it's just do it for me. Um, where do you see this thing going? I mean, I, I think a lot of it is going to depend on, you know, the industry and the problem that you're solving. Right? Okay. So understanding, you know, the personas, you know, the sort of two personas that you brought up, um, you know, I, I do think that, you know, even above that, uh, you know, as a as a people, right, we tend to have an emphasis on convenience. I mean, mm-hmm. Uber, I think, has proven that very yep. well. Netflix has proven that well, where, you know, while, yes, we want information, uh, and there's research that is often done, um, at the end of the day, too, once we have that information, we still want that process to be convenient and as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, in some cases, I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, those sort of two categories are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think there's a benefit, right, as there's a, you know, there's a group of buyers, if you will, or, or people that are going to do that research. But yep. once they've gotten that research, they still want the convenience. So you don't want to get that information and then have to go through a slog to try to ultimately get what you want, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of, mm-hmm. you already put in your time and you want then that satisfaction of both having been right and knowledgeable, but also getting what you want quickly. Yeah. Interesting. So as you're, you know, uh, talking to banks and you're trying to convince them kind of to reorganize to a certain extent, right, uh, and at least restructure their, their, their data systems. Uh, what have you seen as sort of being the biggest obstacles for banks being able to kind of implement these kinds of systems? You know, I think some of the biggest obstacles uh, that we see with financial institutions when it comes to taking on a system like ours or uh, are really going down this innovation path um, you know, honestly, it just tends to be time and really making sure that that, that path and that journey is organized right. I mean, as a whole, um, at least in, in my experience, I mean, most, most of the institutions, especially in the last couple of years that we talked to, um, are actually quite, you know, tend to be more progressive than one might think, especially as mm-hmm. we think about banks traditionally. Yep. Um, that's why at the beginning I was saying, you know, if you, if you sort of package, you know, where, knowing where a bank wants to go, and if you package that in a way, as with anybody, right, uh, that really demonstrates and gives them this sort of nice staircase of innovation. So they understand, they may think they're on step number three, they're really on step zero, right, and saying, hey, you know, 
let's let's sort of bring in reality and understanding where we are, mm-hmm. and don't say try to you know reorganize your entire operating model on day one. You know, let's start with a particular sliver yeah. and get that rolling very well, mm-hmm. get that proven. So that way the organization itself can begin to learn how to change in a, in a different sort of way that it may not be quite as accustomed yeah. to. Yeah, interesting. So it's like similarly how you would probably try to onboard end customers into these systems. You're trying sort of to onboard uh, you know internal customers within the banks right to these mm-hmm. systems. Slice by Absolutely. slice. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, since a lot of it, I mean, to your question, right, I mean, a lot of it's, you know, personality-driven. I mean, as you, as you, as you see innovation um, and the challenge that it has in any industry, it's, you know, while there's sort of natural barriers in terms of purchasing things, from a true innovation standpoint, it tends to be making sure that, you know, the risk and everything else is well understood and that that path is clearly defined. Yeah. Is there something particular to the banking space that makes it easier or more difficult, do you think? I mean, I think, you know, banking compared to some other industries, you know, tends to be more difficult just given the regulatory environment. Right. Um, and traditionally right there, uh, you know, a bank, those banks that succeed best, right, are often those that are most risk averse. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think historically folks tend to, not necessarily wrongly so, but tend to associate innovation with risk. Um, and that's yep. why I say, you know, we mm-hmm. spend a lot of time trying to do some of that decoupling to say, you know, innovation, you know, isn't necessarily always risk. You know, what, what is risky, right, is to go from zero to 100. You know, that is certainly, you know, and, 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 and that gets you to innovation, but that jump can certainly be risky, right? There's yeah. a lot of risk in, in not taking the appropriate right. steps. But you know, I think, you know, given that uh, banks tend to be, again, in that in sort of the business of reducing risk, that's how they stay in business, mm-hmm. um, you know, that makes it somewhat yeah. more challenging than, say, the retail space more specifically. Right, great. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you for um, having me. Yeah. So unfortunately, that's all that we have time for today. Uh, it was a, a wonderful show. Thank you again, Nathan. Uh, big thanks Thank to you. all our listeners for tuning in. Uh, remember, we are live every Thursday at 4 p.m. East, uh, 1 p.m. West. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, please email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. And, of course, you can uh, follow the Mac Institute at our Twitter handle, at Mac Institute, where we'll also be posting about the show. Uh, once again, a special thanks to our guests today, uh, Sheila Talton and Nathan Snell. I would also like to thank our producer, Brian Drew, as well as our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. Until next time, I'm Nikolai Zikolko, co-director of the Mac Institute, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.